Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to our podcast where we do our best to try and give you the latest information about pretty much all areas of medicine that, that we can talk about, whether it's a new study, new guidelines. Uh, something from a regulatory agency, whatever, if it, it affects uh, a lot of boots on the ground clinicians, we try to talk about it here on Game Changers. Uh, thanks for listening. If you're a new listener, a welcome. If you're a long-time listener, a welcome as well. Today, we are going to tackle a pretty big subject. We'll definitely do this in a, in a couple of parts. So this will be part one of kind of a multi-part podcast. But uh, recently, just in the last uh, two or three weeks, in a supplement to the latest issue of Clinical Infectious Diseases, which is the IDSA's flagship publication, they released evidence-based to complement and support the 2021 CDC sexually transmitted infection guidelines. So as you may or may not know, in 2021, CDC updated all their guidelines for all sexually transmitted diseases except HIV, and because that's obviously a separate thing. And they you know, had some significant changes from previous uh, guidelines because new drugs have come out and new studies have come out. And basically what this was, was to complement this. So this supplement, it basically complements those guidelines and basically gives the evidence support support about why those guidelines were made. So we thought it would be a good idea to kind of review the supplement and say well, how it augments the, the CDC guidelines. And again, we're talking, you know, it's a huge supplement. There are, it talks about just about every uh, sexually transmitted disease you can think of. So we're just going to start at the top and kind of work our way through. So the very first one that they talk about in this, in this uh, evidence-based review is vulvovaginal candidiasis. So I mean, I'm, which I'm gonna, just going to say is vaginal candidiasis from this point on. And that's the, the first big uh, evidence review they do, they note that this is extremely common. It's the second most common cause of vaginal infections. It affects three quarters of women during their lifetime and results in about 1.4 million outpatient visits to year to, to physicians and, and providers at an annual treatment cost of a staggering, in my opinion, $370 million. And there's been other studies suggested that low productivity costs approaching $5 billion. Vaginal candidiasis represents a significant economic burden as well as a serious public health issue. And so all of these uh, evidence up dates, they tried to answer specific questions. And so they had a team of experts in the field who reviewed the literature concerning topic areas. And for all of them, they kind of divvy up into, okay, are there any updates in diagnosis? And certainly with the admin of PCR technology, the answer to that question has been yes in the vast majority of sexually transmitted infections. That the way we have much uh, more accurate ways of diagnosing this. Then they talk about, is there need to be an update of, of how we stratify these patients? And for vaginal candidiasis, we talk about uncomplicated versus complicated. And then the last piece they talk about is, is treatment updates. So is there anything new as far as treatment? And they also look at special populations with every single one of these evidence updates. So for example, in vaginal candidiasis one, they talk about about treatment of pregnancy. They talk about non-Canada albican species, so Canada glibrata or Canada cruzier. You know, what data do we have on that? So that's how pretty much all these evidence-based reviews kind of go through. So when we talk about vaginal candidiasis, they note that fewer than half of patients diagnosed with vaginal candidiasis ever actually have a, a confirming assay of something to actually prove that that's what they've got. We basically just go off symptoms. And so they note that in many other areas of medicine, real-time on-site PCR testing 
uh, for Canada groups is becoming more and more available in laboratories and in clinics uh, across the country and has, as it does in most other areas of infectious disease, a very high sensitivity and very high specificity. And they note that overall, the positive predictive value is around 90% and the negative predictive value is around 96%. So they note that for vaginal candidiasis, the ability to actually confirm that's what we're dealing with is becoming more affordable. It's, it's becoming more accessible at, clinic, at, at clinics and, and labs across the country. And I think clinicians should probably avail themselves of that, especially if a patient who has recurrent uh, vaginal candidiasis. So that brings us to our second piece, the second part of the, the evidence-based review they talked about, which is the classification. And they divide the classification of vaginal candidiasis into uncomplicated and complicated, like kind of we do with urinary tract infections. So what do they define as uncomplicated vaginal candidiasis? Women who have a sporadic or inf infrequent disease, mild to moderate disease where it's, it's bothersome, but it isn't really detrimental to the quality of life. And it's probably likely to be candida albicans, which is going to be the most common species of yeast that is going to be causing candidiasis and in women who are non-immunocompromised. So those are, those are the, you have to have all four of those to be considered uncomplicated, that it's infrequent, symptoms are mild to moderate, it's likely to be candida albicans and the patient is not immunocompromised. They then call complicated uh, vaginal candidiasis, uh, people with recurrent disease, and we'll, we'll talk about the definition of that in just a second, or people with severe symptoms that make quality of life very difficult, people with non-albicans candidiasis or anyone with immunocompromised compromising indications, which does include diabetes. So if a, a patient with diabetes has frequent vaginal candidiasis, that would be considered a complicated disease. So then they, they leap into treatment and they know that despite some newer entities on the market, uh, topical azole antifungals continue to be the backbone of treatment and work for the vast majority of patients. So they, they say for almost all uncomplicated vaginal candidiasis, uh, the wide variety of, of azole topicals, creams, ointment suppositories, stuff like that have all been found to to, to work pretty decently. And so they, they basically just endorse what the CDC says is that, you know, the evidence suggests that yes, for uncomplicated topical therapy uh, with an azole certainly makes sense. If that isn't well tolerated, you could certainly try oral fluconazole as well. Then they talk about a new drug. And we, we had actually debated, I think last year about talking about this medication. It's been out for about a year now, and it's a new oral antifungal agent called Ibrexfungerb. And I had to practice saying that three or four times, <laughs> Ibrexafungerb. It is a, a brand new drug. It's, it's a, a different chemical class than the azoles. It affects cell wall metabolism, and it is now FDA approved for vaginal candidiasis. It was based on a, a, a relatively small randomized a trial where they randomized patients with moderate to severe disease to receive three to five days of either this new drug or 150 milligrams of oral fluconazole. They found that uh, the people on the Ibrexafungerb <laughs> regimen had higher clinical and mycological cure rates. Again, they weren't gigantically different, about 10% higher overall, and identical therapeutic cure rates at 24 days of treatment. But the big key here was that when they went downstream at, 100, at, at 120 days, clinical cure rates were much higher. People on the abrexafungerb arm, 88% uh, of them had continued to have, were free of symptoms compared to only 65% in the fluconazole arm. So, you know, there is the possibility that this will be a drug that's reserved for women who have had you know multiple episodes of, of candidiasis. Uh, it is, as you might expect, quite expensive compared to generic fluconazole, but uh, so it's not something you'd want to use right out of the gate, but certainly something that might be possible, especially in the women with recurrent vaginal candidiasis, which is kind of almost a separate category, and they define as three or more symptomatic episodes over 12 
12 months. There's some back and forth in, in, in the document about three versus four, but you know, current treatment protocols and, and most everybody says that, that basically if three or more is considered to be recurrent vaginal candidiasis. This is reported in not a small percentage of women, about 9% of women report recurrent episodes of vaginal candidiasis. And there's a lot of research right now going into the reason why probably the leading candidate is, is a, a permanent change in vaginal pH, which as you might imagine, makes the yeast more likely to, to want to live in that area. But interestingly, some more recent data has suggested that as vaginal pH changes, the efficacy of particularly topical antifungals decreases. So that's, I thought that was kind of interesting that there's been some, some studies now that it suggests that when pH goes higher, that you start to see decreasing efficacy and higher MICs at different pHs. So that might explain why people who have recurrent candidiasis fluconazole may not work as well for them, uh, or the topical agents might not work as well then because just overall, they, they seem to not function as well when vaginal pH changes. So I thought that, I thought that was quite interesting. There are some other medications they talk about that are almost out. These are derivatives of fluconazole. So there's a, a drug called uh, ostakenazole, excuse me, ostakenazole, I'll say that right. It's a promising, uh, highly selective inhibitor of one of the enzymes that produces a candida, has a very long half-life. And so uh, for, again, for women who have recurrent disease, this might be uh, something on the, on the horizon they can look to. Uh, one study suggested that at 48 weeks, women who received this, only, only 4% of them had a recurrence as opposed to 52% of placebo. So we'll see what happens with that. And of course, cost and all, and, and all that sort of stuff as, as time goes on. They finally talk about non-albicans candida. And, and again, the vast majority of candida that causes vaginal candidiasis, of course, is candida albicans. But we are seeing an increased number of, of non-albicans species, particularly candida glabrata, candida peropsilosis, and candida uh, tropicalis um, have all been have all been reported. Uh, there was actually a recent study, uh, a retrospective analysis of non-albicans cases in a large tertiary care center uh, that found that that you know these uh, different subspecies of Canada are just as likely as albicans, uh, even though albicans is kind of the main offender here. Other Canada subspecies can certainly cause candidiasis, but the good news is they also found that even in, in some of these more unusual causes or, or types of Canada, that fluconazole or other types of treatments seem to work just as well. And that's important for things like, you know, we know that peroxylosis and tropicalis, you know, fluconazole works pretty good against. We do get into trouble, I think, a little bit when we talk about glabrata and cruzier because they overall have less uh, susceptibility. But in this retrospective study, for example, glabrata, which was one of the bigger causes, it seems fluconazole worked pretty, pretty decently. So that, that's kind of good to know. So, you know, that's kind of a, a summary of the update and the, and the literature to support vaginal candidiasis. It looks like better diagnosis and that it can be done at the point of care, which is nice. We have a good uh, system to kind of differentiate uncomplicated, uncompli or complicated and recurrent. And they note that while most people do just fine with kind of the tried and true methods, we do have some new agents coming out of the market that might spell relief for patients with complicated or recurrent disease. So that's number one. Going on to number two is uh, we're going to kind of stay in this uh, area. <laughs> Trichomonas vaginalis will be the, the next thing we're going to be talking about. Trichomonas is, as you know, a highly prevalent parasitic infection that is actually the number one non-viral sexually transmitted infection in the United States with uh, that affects an, an estimated 3.7 million women and men in the United States. And that number, I'll admit, kind of blew me away. I had no idea that it was that, is that prevalent. Unfortunately, there are significant health disparities here as African-Americans are four times more likely to be infected than, than patients of other races, as, as they know. 
and they note that the global prevalence of trichomonas is, is actually higher than that of chlamydia, uh, gonorrhea, and syphilis combined. So again, it's very, very common sexually transmitted disease. And I will be honest with you, I think a lot of practitioners, it isn't even in, you know, yes, if you ask someone to name five sexually transmitted infections, I'm not sure trichomonas hits the top five in a lot of people. So that really did, did surprise me. It's noted that the, this organism is transmitted among humans because we're its only known host. And, and again, it is transmitted primarily by sexual intercourse. Uh, the reason that so many people have this is that the majority of women, in fact, one study suggested over 75% of men and women are asymptomatic. And and that about half of those who after the first of their asymptomatic phase will become symptomatic within six months and have kind of similar symptoms to candidiasis with you know, erythema, uh, pain during sex, dysuria, vaginal discharge, you know, all those sort of things, as well as itching and, and stuff like that. Just like Canada, trichomonas changes the vaginal pH markedly. And so that can have some uh, effect on, on some of the symptoms and things going on. The classic for the for prescribers listening, the classic uh, board question, of course, is, is the so-called strawberry cervix finding that is seen in about uh, five women on pelvic examination, though with, with other, other types of examination, it can rise to much higher. So it's, it's actually, it's one of the, you know, supposed dead giveaways of trichomonas infection in these patients. But you may say, well, if half the women don't even get infected, why would we or have symptoms? Why would we care? Because uh, complications that can occur uh, and the complications can occur in both women and men. And they include infection of the skin and the bartholin glands in women, and that it increases the risk of pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, especially among uh, uh, patients with, uh, with uh, women with HIV. In men, it can cause urethritis, epididymitis, prostatitis, and decreased sperm motility. Most importantly, though, trichomonas is associated with poor birth outcomes. So if someone is asymptomatic and becomes pregnant, they increase the risk of, of, of outcomes such as low birth weight, premature delivery, and premature rupture of membranes, uh, which, uh, again, they say not not uncommon. And uh, as you might imagine, since it's so common, trichomonas is also associated with concomitant uh, SCI infections, uh, such as uh, bacterial vaginosis. So women can often have both, unfortunately. So, so again, just like the previous guideline, they kind of divide into diagnosis, stratification and treatment. So diagnosis, just like with a candidiasis has changed somewhat, the, the kind of classic diagnosis test, of course, is, is the wet mount microscopy. It has long been known, however, that even while it's inexpensive, it can be formed in most clinical settings as a point of care test. It has a very low sensitivity. And that, again, just like with vaginal candidiasis, have numerous PCR tests that are coming out. They're coming down in price and will be not necessarily available in every lab, but as time goes on, will probably become more and more available to actually confirm the diagnosis. When they talk about a stratification, there is, unlike vaginal candidiasis, there's not really an uncomplicated or uncomplicated. So they note that there hasn't been any changes or updates as far as those. And then we get into treatment. Now, when I came out of school, I was taught that a single dose of oral metronidazole was, was the preferred treatment for, for trichomonas infection, and that there was other alternatives you can do. But we now have data that shows uh, pretty much the seven-day oral metronidazole course, particularly in patients with, with concomitant other STIs, but really in all patients, it shows a seven-day superiority over a single dose. So now, in most cases, without a single dose of two grams is not no longer recommended for trichomonas infections, and you should be on a seven-day course of flagell BID. They note that there's several new medications that are on the market that are kind of really, you know, cousins of, of, of metronidazole. Tenazidol, which has been around for a while now as an alternative, can be, can be used. There's another new agent called seconidazole, which has been out. It has a much longer half-life than currently available agents. It's actually FDA approved for bacterial vaginosis, but there's now emerging 
using data suggesting that it's also very effective against uh, trichomonas infections in women. And so they, they note that that might be something to consider in patients as well. As you might imagine, since the outcomes with pregnancy are, are pretty concerning, there's a lot of question about if a woman were to be found to be pregnant and then actually be diagnosed with trichomonas, can we use metronidazole to treat? And this is what I've said for years, and, and, and I'm glad they kind of reiterated this in, in the guidelines that actually metronidazole is class B drug, though, in my opinion, and I, I think a lot of people I know, the, the uh, FDA classification for, for pregnancy uh, drugs and pregnancy has always been pretty useless unless it's X. But what it notes is that actual meta-analyses have found that metronidazole is actually safe in pregnant women in all stages of pregnancy. So again, don't be afraid to prescribe metronidazole to a pregnant woman with, with trichomonas in all stages of pregnancy because it seems to be safe. It notes that tinidazole has not been evaluated in pregnant women and remains a class C drug. Then they go on to talk about recurrence, and recurrence is actually quite common with, with, with trichomonas, uh, ranging up to about a third of patients uh, 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 who have uh, who have the initial treatment. And so they note that, of course, this could be from a lot of things, uh, actually treatment failure, reinfection from an untreated or infected partner, or infection from a new partner. Now, fortunately, resistance is low in the U.S., and so there's no need to do cultures or anything along those lines. But they do note that, that because of this level of recurrence, that all patients with, with an initial trichomonas infection should be retested three months after treatment because of the high repeat infection rates, and then again, treat them basically the same again, basically. So, so that's something, again, I think is relatively new that if someone has, has trichomonas, you treat them, you want to bring them back into the clinic in three months and retest them to see if, if they have a repeat infection, because again, they very well may be base, a, a, asymptomatic. I've run into this problem a couple of times that the patient who is allergic to flagell, because tinidazole is a fairly closely related drug, you know, there's always some concern about using that, especially if it's a severe Severe allergy. And so they note that in patients with severe allergies to, to metronidazole, there's just not a lot of options uh, for the compounding pharmacist out there listening. Um, you've probably made these before, but uh, intravaginal boric acid can be tried in these patients uh, and intravaginal paramomycin can be used. The problem is, of course, neither of these have been evaluated in large randomized controlled trials. And because they're not systemic treatments, they may not reach all sites of infection. So they would they'd never be the first line agent uh, and probably only be used in patients again, with severe allergy, if it was even just a mild, you know, or, you know, itching rash, you might be able to get away with it. Only with really, really severe allergy would you consider compounding pharmacy options, basically. And then finally, and this is something I was certainly taught, is that yes, all sex partners of, of, of patients with, who, with a trichomonas infection should be treated as well. And previously, you know, how to approach this has always been a little bit tricky. Patients were told by the writers, you know, okay, well, you need to tell your partner to seek testing treatment. The guidelines now recommend that to kind of skip one step and the high risk of co-infection or, or transmission in the infection that basically rather than testing and treating uh, that providers should just consider test, uh, treating partners preemptively. So don't worry about testing, but if the male partner and you want to treat, just go ahead and, and prescribe the seven days of metronidazole and you're good to go. They do point out, and this is something I've said for years, so so those of you who know me have, have mentioned is, you know, uh, there, you know, metronidazole, of course, has long been associated with supposed disulfiram-like reaction in patients who drink alcohol. It's worth noting that an interesting study came out. Now it's been probably 17, 18 years, came out from uh, Finland, where they actually took some patients, they actually put them on metronidazole for several days, and then gave them uh, ethanol and nothing happened. So probably is, is not really truly a drug interaction you need to worry that much about. I've been saying that for years for people who've always heard my bugs and drugs talks on rounds and stuff. So, so that's number two. Now we're going to hit the, the trifecta here and talk about bacterial vaginosis, right? So BV or bacterial vaginosis is uh, actually the, the most common cause of vaginal
conventional discharge. It's interesting in that it's a dysbiosis. So it, it is primarily caused because of displacement of healthy lactic acid-producing lactobacillus, which lives in the vaginal area of most women, with high concentrations of usually anaerobic uh, bacteria, particularly Gardnella and Prevotella are the two that, that, they, that they note. So this is a really a, a classic example of where pathogenic organisms kind of move in on what are considered really harmless or maybe even beneficial uh, parts of our normal biome and they're the ones who end up causing the problems. So they note that despite 60 years of research, we really don't understand the etiology of bacterial vaginosis. Um, it remains unclear, but they do note that it's, 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 it's still not uncommon that one study in North America found that at some point, 23 to 29% of women will have a case of bacterial vaginosis at some point in their life. And African-American and Hispanic women have a significantly higher prevalence than other racial and ethnic groups. They note that the annual global economic burden of treating symptomatic BV is, again, a staggering $5 billion with more than half of these costs due to recurrent episodes. As far as risk factors, recent studies have suggested now that copper IUDs may increase the risk of developing bacterial vaginosis. That's a form of birth control that's becoming less popular, but there are still who will opt for that type of, of, of contraception and that they are at increased risk of developing and it actually goes up as time goes on. Then the guidelines spend quite a bit of time talking about, you know, is bacterial vaginosis a true sexually transmitted disease? Because this has been a fairly controversial topic. And so one study that they note found that when they had patients with bacterial vaginosis and then they basically swabbed their partners to look for this, this similar bacteria, they found actually a high prevalence of these kind of organisms, these anaerobic in the penile microbiota, um, and they were simply more likely to have a female partner who also had a uh, high level of these organisms and high symptom scores suggestive of the sexual exchange of, of vaginosis. So the, the answer is the balance of the data suggests that yes, in fact, bacterial vaginosis is probably at least partially sexually transmitted. They note that the big problem with bacterial vaginosis besides the symptoms is that it dramatically increases the risk of acquisitions of other STIs, including HIV, chlamydia, Neisseria gonorrhea, trichomonas, and several others, uh, HPV as well. So in addition to the symptoms themselves, it increases the susceptibility of the patient to a wide variety of other types of sexually transmitted diseases. That in and of itself is a good reason to want to treat it. So um, when we move on to diagnosis, like we've had with these other sexually transmitted diseases, they talk about five commercially available PCR or nucleic attic amplification tests for BV, all of which have excellent sensitivity and specificity. Uh, they are more uh, relatively expensive, but because there's five and they're kind of competing with each other, they know that the, the prices are dropping and should be re relatively available in most labs in the United States states and uh, clinics as time goes on. So again, just like these other diseases, I think uh, the, the advent of PCR technology is really going to advance our ability to accurately diagnose STIs, including these STIs, and know exactly what we're dealing with as far as, 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 far as the organism, which of course helps us with treatment. They note that treatment continues to be recommended for patients who have any sort of symptoms. So, and again, it's mostly just to, to relieve the symptoms, but the, of course, the other pieces 
is the potential to reduce the risk of acquiring HIV and other STIs. The guidelines actually have not changed all that much. The primary treatment is usually either metronidazole gel given for five days or clindamycin vaginal cream given for five days, but they also note that oral flagell can work as well as well. So metronidazole orally for seven days can work as well. So you have several options, both topically and orally that you can use. Updated guidelines really didn't say anything about any of the new stuff, considering that there's now three additional uh, treatments in the last five years that have come out approved by the FDA for bacterial vaginosis. One is oral and it's asecnitazole. The trade name is Solasec. This comes as a two gram oral granules that can be, that should be dissolved in applesauce pudding or yogurt. And then two different uh, uh, name brand formulations of metronidazole and clindamycin, the latter being a sustained release formulation, which supposedly lasts much longer in the vaginal area. As you might imagine, these newer brand names are far more expensive than the generics, and they note that there's no head-to-head studies, so they actually don't recommend these newer agents over kind of the tried and true oral agents, which still seem to work in, in a lot of patients. So then we get into pregnant women, and they actually say that, that again, there, there may be some evidence to suggest that women with bacterial vaginosis who are pregnant may have, have a slightly higher risk of preterm birth. So they basically divide the patients up and say, well, if you're a pregnant woman and you have BV and you have other risk factors for preterm delivery, then, it, uh, then it's reasonable to go ahead and, and screen and treat you if you actually have it, even if you're asymptomatic. If you're at low risk, they say it's probably not necessary to do. They note that recurrent bacterial vaginosis is extremely common. Two-thirds of women will actually experience a recurrence within 12 months of treatment. And they say that there's ongoing studies to say, do we just keep treating these patients or is there anything else we can do to do that? Unlike uh, trichomonas, there's now been a few studies that have tried to answer the question about treatment of male sectional uh, partners of women with BV. And the balance of the data at this point, there's been a couple of studies that have suggested that maybe there's some benefit, but there's been more studies out that have suggested that there isn't a benefit. And so at this point in time, the the CDC guidelines, based on the evidence, uh, it's kind of a, you know, a couple show a benefit, but the majority do not actually do not recommend treatment of male partners of women with bacterial vaginosis because the balance of the data does not suggest a decrease in recurrence. And then, uh, as you might, since this is a dysbiosis, and it's a question I've gotten asked, I suspect many of you have gotten asked, is what about oral probiotics or vaginal probiotics? And unfortunately, there are no good randomized control trials suggesting that either of those are actually beneficial. Doubt they're harmful in patients who are immunocompetent, but it doesn't seem to have any real benefit. Uh, there's been some note that high doses of vitamin D may help. And again, no good randomized control trials have shown that. So based on the evidence, probiotics given either uh, topically or orally or vitamin D does not seem to help decrease the risk of current uh, bacterial vaginosis. So that's kind of where we're at. So that's it for this week. Next week, uh, we will tackle the others. And again, this is a, a pretty in-depth document. So we'll, we'll do our best to kind of summarize the literature for you, but definitely stick around for, for part two of our uh, review of the evidence base for the 2021 CDC STI guidelines. That's it for this week. And we'll see you next week. But until then, remember that time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.